Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. In 1994, the Coca-Cola Company, one of the largest soft drink companies in the world, launched a massive advertising campaign to redefine the brand image of one of their most popular drinks. That drink was Sprite. Now, prior to that point, uh, the, the Sprite brand had been largely built around the slogan, I like the Sprite in you. Now, sadly, I'm old enough to remember that late 80s jingle, and it was terrible, and yet somehow I still remember it. Uh, But somehow it worked for a while, and then it didn't. And sales started declining, uh, especially among the growing uh, Gen X crowd that it was being marketed to, and so Sprite was in need of a rebrand. Coke wanted something hip. They wanted something fresh, something new that would appeal to the up-and-coming younger generation. And as a result, a new campaign was born, and so was this slogan, Obey Your Thirst. Now, for the next 25 years, billboards, commercials, magazines, advertisements, they all put that green bottle, or, or can in some sense, front and center, fizzing with temptation, reminding people everywhere that that thirst is everything. And because thirst is everything, we should obey our thirst. Now, it was a, it was a genius marketing shift in many ways. It was a, a new campaign built around the growing virtues of an evolving culture, self-expression, individuality, personality. See, Sprite was onto something. Thirst is everything. Whatever you want, go for it. Whatever it is that you desire, get it. Obey your thirst. See, it was the right slogan at the right time, a time in which companies were, were tapping into the unofficial anthems of our culture. Anthems like, just do it. Have it your way. If it feels good, do it. Go ahead. You deserve it. You're worthy. Obey your thirst. Now, Sprite knew that they weren't just marketing a product. They weren't just marketing a drink. They were selling an idea. They were tapping into a reality. What was that reality? Well, the reality that Sprite knew is that we're all thirsty. Every single one of us is thirsty. But the question, the real question is, what are we thirsty for? Well, I think Coke hopes that we're thirsty for a Sprite, but obviously much more, right? See, it's interesting. Just this past year, after 25 years of Obey Your Thirst, Sprite changed their marketing campaign again. They called it a a modern evolution of sorts. And so Obey Your Thirst has now become Thirst for Yours. Thirst for yours. Achieve your greatest ambitions. Do more. Dream bigger. Thirst for yours. What's yours? Well, it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter because that's not the point. No, the point, and Sprite knows it, is that you and I are thirsty. We're all thirsty, and we live in a thirsty culture, a culture that has us trapped in the endless pursuit of happiness and joy and satisfaction, looking for something, looking for anything to give us what we want. We're thirsty. Sprite knows it. Which, of course, this is true for the woman that we meet here in John chapter 4 this evening. You saw the video. It's such a great scene. I really love it. Um, but I want to look at the Bible. I want to look together at God's word. I want to jump in to the Gospel of John chapter 4, picking up in verse 3. This is what John says. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John adds a little detail, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So if you were here last week, you saw with us, we, we, we saw Jesus' encounter, or maybe you listened online, we, we heard, we saw Jesus' encounter with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jew. He was an educated religious leader. He was a Pharisee, a distinguished teacher. This week, though, someone very different. This week, Jesus encounters a Samaritan, an uneducated, socially despised, immoral woman. The two couldn't be more different. But before we get into her story, I want to I do something. I want to look at something. I want to go back to something that I think it's really easy to miss. You probably miss it unless uh, you would have missed it unless I highlight it. It's verse 4. Look at this first. This is what John says. John says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Here's a map. I have no idea if this map is going to be helpful uh, but we're going to go with it. And so what you see uh, down at the bottom, uh, you see Judea. That's where Jesus is. That's where he's starting. And where he's headed is up north there at the top, Galilee. And right there in the middle is Samaria. Now, of course, if you and I were traveling from Judea to Galilee, it would make sense to go through Samaria, right? It's the fastest, most direct route. But, but the thing is, Jews rarely did this. Jews rarely went through Samaria because they despised the Samaritans. They hated them so much that they went out of the way. They took a longer route. They crossed the Jordan, went around Samaria up to Galilee just to avoid crossing paths with them. Why? Well, there's some history here. Um, to make a long story short, uh, to... to um, when the northern kingdom, this is, this is the history, this is why Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. When the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital city of Samaria, when they were defeated by the Assyrians all the way back, long, long time ago, 722 B.C., what the Assyrians did is they deported the, the, the northern Israelites, they deported them, and then they brought foreigners in. 
They brought foreigners in to repopulate the area, and, and while they were repopulating, there were some Jews left. Not, not everyone was deported. There were some Jews left. And so when they brought the foreigners in, they repopulated, they intermarried with the remaining Jews. And as a result, as a result of this intermarriage, we get the Samaritans. Samaritans eventually became, uh, Jews would regard them as ritually defiled, ethnic half-breeds. They weren't fully Jews. They were a racially mixed group of partly Jewish, partly Gentile ancestry, and so they were disdained both by Jews and non-Jews. And so to put it lightly, tensions between Jews and Samaritans often ran quite high. See, they were divided by history. They were divided by race. They were divided by religion. And as a result, there was constant animosity between the two. Now, why am I saying all this? Why, am I, why, why go through all of this? Because I want us to catch this. I want us to catch the fact that Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He didn't have to. He chose to. Jesus chose to go through Samaria. Jesus chose to cut through Samaria, the place that Jews didn't go, because Jesus had a mission. Jesus had a purpose. And that purpose, that mission, it put him on a trajectory. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It put him on a trajectory to cross paths with someone radically different from him. When Jesus chose to go through Samaria, he chose to wade into the waters of animosity. He chose to wade into the ethnic and racial tension of the day. And so hear me say this. When Jesus chose to go through Samaria, instead of going around it like all other Jews often did, when Jesus chose to enter into racial tension, Jesus brings us with him. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully, it means that we're going to have to be willing to do the same. We're going to have to be willing to enter in, to engage in the race conversation. See, I'll be honest, I can't read this verse. I hope we can't read this verse. We can't talk about Jews and Samaritans without discussing the topic of race relations right here, right now in our day. It's all around us. It's all around us. I get that it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's hard for me. I get it. But the thing about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't give us a choice. He doesn't give us a choice. See, like many of you, over the last several months, it's been challenging for me. These ideas, these topics, these issues, they've been hard for me, challenging as I see the hurt and fear and anger of people of color all over our nation. Challenging as I see the violence. Challenging as I see the rioting in the streets. Challenging as I see the evil. The senseless murdering of men and women. People created in God's image. People given inherent dignity and value by their creator. People worthy of receiving mercy and compassion, and yet people who have been and are and will continue to suffer for far too long at the hands of injustice. See, it's not, it's not just an out there problem, is it? Sometimes we're tempted to think that it's just out there, but it's not. Just a few months ago, maybe you saw, you probably did, uh, the hashtag Black at Mizzou started uh, trending on Twitter. And since it began on Twitter, 
hundreds, thousands of experiences, students and alumni started sharing their experiences of racism right here in Columbia at Mizzou. Now, I'm not saying that to throw Mizzou under the bus. That's not my interest. My interest is that that's what people in our community are going through. I spent the better part of yesterday afternoon reading story after story, experience after experience, and they're heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking. And so what do we do? What do we, what do we say? How should Christians respond to these kinds of race issues? They're not just issues, right? They're people. We're talking about people, not just issues. How do we respond well, I'll be really honest. I, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. I, I don't have many. And if I can be really honest, part of the reason I don't have many answers is because for a long time, I just stayed out of it. I stayed out of it. I removed myself from the race conversation. I removed myself from race issues. I stayed away. I didn't think about it. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't want to think about it. And to my embarrassment, I'm standing up in front of you and saying, to my embarrassment, it took me far too long to realize that removing myself from engaging race issues is a privilege that I have that people of color simply do not. It took me far too long to realize that while I don't have to think about race, people of color think about it every day. They engage it every day. They live it every single day. See, even more, it took me far too long to realize that I've been avoiding the very thing that Jesus himself chose to enter when he walked through Samaria that day. This stuff is hard, isn't it? It's hard, I get it. I know some of us in here tonight, and to be honest, myself included, we're tempted to think that, that these issues, that they're political issues. We're tempted to think that when we start talking about race, when we have that hard conversation, that we're talking about social issues. It's not just political issues. They're not just social issues. No, they're gospel issues. Gospel issues. Because Jesus came, why? To unite. Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus came to bring flourishing. Jesus came to bring justice and reconciliation and hope and all of these things to all people. The book of Revelation says that one day we'll gather around him, gather around the throne, people of every tribe, every language, every nation, and worship him, all people. See, we can't follow Jesus and not care about race. We can't follow Jesus and not care about race. So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we grow in our awareness? How do we grow in our care? How do we grow in our concern about these things? How do we enter in instead of avoid and go around? My guess is that we're all in a room this size. We're all in different places. What I need is different than what you need, and what you need might be different than the person sitting next to you. That's okay. But these are some things that I've been thinking about, some things that I've been talking about, some of our staff. What does it look like to grow? What does it look like to learn? What does it look like to engage? Well, for some, I think it means reaching out to a friend of color, being willing to, to sit down and listen and really see people, listen to their story, 
hear their experience, enter their life, grow in empathy and concern and compassion and understanding of the things that they have to go through day in and day out. For others of us, it, it means educating ourselves. Maybe challenging a particular viewpoint that we've had for a long time. Maybe we don't even know why we have that viewpoint. But, but, but educating ourselves by, by reading books and, and, and articles and listening to podcasts so that, that we can learn and grow. Just as a side note, if that's you, if you'd like a recommendation, me, our staff, we could give all sorts of things. I'm sure several of you have great ideas as well. Maybe for the others, others of you, it means using your voice. Using your presence, peacefully protesting. Maybe not everyone, but maybe some peacefully protesting. Using your voice, using your presence when and where you have the opportunity to stand up against injustice. Now, I know what I'm saying right now is far too simplistic. I know that I'm talking about complex issues and that these are just simple places, but there are places to start for a lot of us. Let me just say that regardless of where you're at, entering into instead of avoiding and going around, I think what it really means is that we all, all of us, we have to be willing to, to honestly reflect on our own lives. Take a long look at ourselves in the mirror. Be willing to ask ourselves hard questions, answer hard questions, have hard conversations. It means being willing to lay down our views and perspectives long enough so that we hear people. Because maybe when we start to hear people, it's so hard to hear people right now, isn't it? I mean, we're too busy tweeting. We're too busy texting. It's so hard to actually hear people. But when we do, maybe we'll actually humbly acknowledge that we can and should learn and grow from the experience of others, especially those that are very different from us. I, I know, I know, I know, I know that this is hard. It's hard for me. But I also think that this kind of reflection means that, that we need to ask ourselves what racial sins, what stereotypes, what seeds of racism, not out there, but right here, what seeds of racism are, are in our own hearts? What is it that we need to repent of? What privileges, what advantages do you have, do we have that others don't have? I'm not, I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should feel guilty for that. I'm not saying to feel guilty for the, your advantages if you have them, but what I am saying is own it. Use it. Use your privilege. Use your advantage if you have it to help, to serve, to sacrifice for all people, to stand up for injustice whenever and wherever you see it. I'll say it again, I know that this isn't easy. I know that it takes time. I know that it takes hard work. A lot of you in here probably have been doing a lot of really hard work on these things. I know it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. And yet what I want us to hear, what I want you to hear is that Jesus choosing to go through Samaria means that entering into racial reconciliation is not optional for those of us who follow him. It is not optional if we follow Jesus. As Jesus goes, so do we. 
Speaking of as Jesus goes, what happens when Jesus actually gets to Samaria? What happens when he actually gets there? Look, look back, picking up in verse 5. John says, so Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So, so catch that, because I think it's interesting, and I think it's also easy to miss, that, that Jesus who in John chapter one, we're told is the word, the creator, the one who was with God and was God, the creator of all things, the one who became flesh to dwell with us. Why? So that we would believe that he's the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life. That Jesus, John tells us, is tired. He's tired. See, Jesus is God, but he's also fully human. And he's been traveling, and it's the middle of the day, and all he wants is to sit down and have a drink. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and, and who it is that, that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this water? She's confused, right? She's confused and for good reason because in Jesus' day, living water, what that referred to was, was fresh flowing spring water. Fresh flowing spring water, not stagnant, stale cistern water that most people were accustomed to. And so when Jesus says he has living water, she says, okay, where is it? And by the way, you don't have a bucket, so how are we going to get it? That's something I want, but how do we get it? But Jesus isn't talking about physical water, is he? Verse 13. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, talking about the, the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. See, this, this encounter, it's not a mistake. It's not an accident. In that sense, Jesus really did have to go through Samaria. Jesus knows who she is. Jesus knows her story. But you know what? Jesus isn't the only one that knows her story. The entire town knows her story. That's why she's at the well at noon, because nobody goes to the well at noon. Nobody goes to the well, especially a woman in the middle of the day when the sun is the hottest. Nobody goes to the well at noon unless that is your hiding, unless that is your avoiding, unless that is you don't want to be seen because nobody wants to be seen with you. See, this woman, we don't know a lot, but we know that she's made a mess out of her life guy after guy, relationship after relationship, husband after husband. She's thirsty. She's thirsty. 
trapped in the same endless pursuit of happiness and joy and satisfaction, looking to men to quench her thirst, and Jesus knows it. And he says to her, go and call your husband and come back. Now, why, why would Jesus say that? Why, why rip open what certainly is a wound in her life? Why would Jesus do that? She, she wants the water. She says, sir, give this to me. Seems like she's ready, but Jesus doesn't give it to her. Instead, he, he sticks his finger, he, he pokes, he pushes on one of the biggest disappointments of her life. He says, go and call your husband and come back. Now imagine, put yourselves in her shoes for a second. Imagine the look on her face. I know it's hard for guys, but imagine being her. Imagine her response. Imagine the hurt. Imagine the pain at that question. Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband. Imagine the embarrassment, the guilt, the shame. I have no husband. She says, Jesus says, you're right. But you're thirsty. You're thirsty. See, Jesus exposes her sin. He uncovers her shame. Why? To condemn her? No, not at all. See, what Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to help her realize that, that, that what she really thirsts for is him. What she's really thirsting for is, is not sex. It's not a man. It's not a husband. It's not a marriage. It's not anything else. It's him. That's who she's thirsting for. See, this meeting, it's not an accident. Jesus chose to go through Samaria. He chose to come to that spot at that time. Why? For her. And he says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've, where you've been. I don't care who you're with. What you're looking for right now is me. What you're looking for right now is me. She deflects and says, sir, Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I, I know that Messiah called Christ. I know that he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Jesus looks at her and he declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, Jesus says to this woman, I am the Messiah. She's the only one that knew. He hadn't revealed himself to anyone else except to this woman in this spot at this time. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. No, Jesus intentionally broke through the racial barrier. Jesus intentionally broke through the religious barrier. Jesus intentionally broke through the social barrier, the moral barrier for that particular moment. 
because he knows that she's thirsty. And so he says to her, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. We're thirsty too, aren't we? We're a lot like that woman. Circumstances are different. But we're thirsty too, aren't we? Thirst is everything. We live in a thirsty culture. What are you thirsting for right now? What are you looking for? What's that thing that you're trying to find, that thing that you think if you get, maybe you have it right now, what is that thing that you think will make you happy, that thing that you think will bring you joy, that thing that you think will give you satisfaction? See, what Jesus is saying to you tonight, what he's saying to me tonight is that he's the only one that will quench our thirst. Everything else, everything else that we try to to quench the thirst that we all have, everything else is just going to make us thirstier. Now, some of you right now know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been trying to quench your thirst. You've been trying to find something. You've been looking and seeking over and over and over and over, and you're still thirsty. You're still so thirsty. We all are, though, right? I mean, we all are thirsty, and whether we know it or not, what Jesus is saying is what we really thirst for is the worship of God in Jesus. That's why he said the true worship that the Father seeks, spirit, truth, heart, mind, what our soul longs for, what we long for, what we're thirsting for is the worship of God in Jesus. The worship of God through song. So it's why we gather together every Tuesday night and why we sing songs. We don't just do it to go through the motions. We pick songs and and think through lyrics and, 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 and teach the Bible through singing, shape our loves for God through singing. Do you worship God through singing? Or is that just a part of the service that we have to get through in order to get to the sermon, the important part? I hope that's not what you think. I hope that you love to sing. I hope that you increasingly love to worship God through song. Because that's the kind of worship the Father seeks. But the kind of worship that the Father seeks also is a a kind of worship that says, I want to spend time with Jesus. I want to spend time getting to know God. I want to spend time understanding God's story and seeing my place in that story by spending time in my Bible. Spending time reading God's word. Cultivating a relationship with Jesus alongside others. It's not just you and Jesus, right? No, it's cultivating a relationship with Jesus alongside other people, this community. See, that's the kind of worship that the Father seeks, and it's the thing that you are really thirsting for, the thing that you're really longing for, the thing that you're really looking for, whether you know it or not, and it's the only thing that's going to actually satisfy you. There's a... C.S. Lewis book, uh, you've maybe read it, uh, The Silver Chair. Silver Chair, uh, it's in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And, and, and in this book, there's a scene where one of the characters, Jill, 
she encounters Aslan, who, uh, if you aren't familiar somehow, uh, is the, the lion, the great lion, right? And also plays the, the fictional uh, Jesus figure throughout the Chronicles of Narnia story. And, and in this particular scene, Jill, this, this character, she's, she's dying of thirst for whatever reason. And, and Aslan is there, and, and he invites her to, to take a drink from his stream. And then they have a conversation, and, and this, is, this is how it goes. Jill says, will you, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Aslan says, I make no promise. Do you eat girls, she said? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. The narrator tells us it didn't say this. The lion didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. And then Jill said, I daren't come and drink. Well, then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, taking another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. As the music team comes back, of course there are other streams. Of course there are other streams. There always will be. There always will be other streams in our lives, in our culture. But what Jesus is teaching us tonight is that none of those streams will quench your thirst the way that he can. None of those streams, none of those things that you're looking for to quench your thirst will satisfy you like he will. None of those things will bring you the happiness and joy that he can give. See, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whoever you're with, what you're really looking for, what you're really looking for is Jesus. See, Jesus is the only one that can bring you happiness. Jesus is the only one that can bring you joy and peace and hope and satisfaction because Jesus is the only one that really has, that actually has living water. And what Jesus is saying to you tonight, what Jesus is saying to us tonight is let anyone, he says in John chapter seven, let anyone, anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So as it turns out, Sprite got it right, didn't they? Thirst really is everything. So we should obey our thirst. Except don't, don't thirst for yours. Thirst for Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, Follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.